Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. Welcome to episode 136 of the Garden DC podcast. In this episode, we talk with Gary Polarczyk of the Rustic Garden about home composting. The plant profile is on stinking hellebore, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Greg Peterson of the Urban Farm podcast, who shares the last word on observation. This episode, we're joined by Gary Polarczyk of the Rusted Garden. He's returning guest, uh, and we had him for our episode 123, Cover Crops and Winter Bed Prep. And in that discussion, some listeners might remember that we started to get a little bit into home composting, but we promised to bring him back to talk really in depth about home composting. So welcome back, Gary. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for having me. And thanks for rejoining us. And since that was last October 2022, uh, I was going to ask, has anything new happened in your life since then in the last few months? Well, it's seed starting time, which is not new. I always do that in January. But I did just finish my second book. It's called Edible Landscaping. And I just turned it in, I think, in the beginning of January. I co-authored it with a friend. Um, But it should be something that is outcome November 2023. So it's very exciting. Now it's kind of just wait and kind of put the finishing touches on it, but I'm excited. Yeah. And that's unusual to come out in November for a gardening book. Yeah. It's just the way the dice rolled. So I was like, and it worked out for me too, because it gave me more, I don't know how many people have the opportunity to write a book, but sometimes it goes around your growing season. So this year, this book, I was able to grow and photograph and get it into the book. So the timing worked out pretty nicely. That is very fortunate, Gary, having to have uh, write a gardening book, the opposite of the growing season. <laughs> That's yeah, always more convenient. Yeah. It's yeah. been very, it was very hard, especially because you want to run out and be able to take photos right there in your garden. And you're like, ah, that would not be now. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. <laughs> being able to gather it up uh, as it happens is really helpful. So we'll look forward to that. Maybe we'll have you back on the podcast when the edible landscaping title comes out. I'm looking forward to reading it. So let's talk a little bit about home composting as far as the number one question that I usually get is from people in small spaces. And so to start off with a small home composting operation, what would you do? So I usually ask the question small. Do you mean um, no land or not very much land. So if you do have land, all you need is a four foot by four foot space. And that's what I recommend starting with. Now, if you're kind of, you know, stuck with maybe having a garden on a balcony or in a tight, tight space, a um, 
why did I just forget the name? Just a, a cylindrical composting tumbler. A compost tumbler is what I'm trying to think of. Works really well. They don't take up a lot of room. They can take up a little footprint, maybe a couple feet, um, but they hold a lot. And it's just a tumbler, kind of like a barrel on its side, smaller, usually made out of plastic. And you can put all your uh, organic waste out of your kitchen and stuff into there, give it a couple of spins, and that will start you on your way of making compost. And so with the tumbler systems, I've always heard that the second you add something new into the tumbler, you're restarting the countdown for making into compost. Yeah. So I, whenever I'm teaching people about compost, a couple of things is compost, like if you were to buy it in a bagged, bagged compost. Compost can be in any state of decay and they can call it compost. So I really don't like the bag stuff. In your tumbler, if you do add in more, say, you know, fresh lettuce or vegetables, you're adding in more nitrogen and that nitrogen may heat your pile up again. But generally speaking, you know, you are just kind of throwing in scraps as you get them with a comp- with a, uh, a tumbler like that. And you're not so much worried about the ratios. You just give it a spin, you let it heat up, do its thing, and you can kind of just sift through it and take out what you need when you need it. Um, but they're, they're pretty, they're pretty effective and pretty efficient. Hmm. And then, so you're saying those with land can, if they have four by four space, which almost everybody, even with a tiny backyard might be able to give over, um, that would not be using the tumbler. That would be the next step. Yeah. I like the four foot by four foot space. That's the minimum, just a square, four feet by Mm -hmm. four feet. And you want to make the pile as high as you can up to about four feet or five feet, but you can pen in that four foot by four foot space with some T posts or some stakes. Um, you can just wrap chicken wire around it. And when you bring that chicken wire around the front, you can, you know, cut it and just loosely hang it around the post so that the front is covered, but you can kind of open it up like a gate. I've even bought dog kennels to kind of keep dogs in the space in your house. And they're perfect. They're four feet by four feet. They're like 25 bucks and you can find them on Amazon. And I just set that cage up outside, made a nice four foot again by four foot square. And I would just throw my compost in there. And the the biggest barrier, that's the question I get a lot, is people just don't get started. They get kind of paralyzed with, I need to have this right mixture of browns or carbons and greens, and I have to heat it up and I have to turn it. And that is true to an extent, but my best compost is stuff I started four years ago and I started harvesting it last year. And you just throw in your organic matter and you got that pen and maybe you don't use it right away. But after a couple of years just natural process, cold, cool composting, whatever you want to call it. You've got great stuff that worms got into. They broke it down and you just dig it out from the bottom, put it in your garden, and then you just add more material to that. So you don't have to be very, you don't have to be an active composter. You don't have to be worried about those ratios and turning it and flipping it and doing all that stuff. Just collect the organic matter in a four foot by four foot space. Keep it moist. Keep it out of the sun. You know, somewhere shady is fine. I get that question a lot. Shade's perfectly fine. And just let it break down. Let nature do its thing. Hmm. I'm so glad you said that, Gary, because, yeah, it can be so intimidating. I think people see volumes written on composting and, you know, these scientific formulas of this and that and what you have to add and all these um, mandates of what you shouldn't add. But maybe we'll go into a few things of precautions in that direction. But, yeah, 
I always tell people it's as simple as, you know, compost happens. It's going to happen without human intervention anyway, right? We're just Mm -hmm. speeding it up a little bit by pushing it all together into a pile and letting it decompose and then being able to retrieve that and use it for a garden. Exactly. And the, the biggest tip again, I mean, the first one is just get started. Four, four foot by four foot space, pile it in there and just put it in a place where you can sort of maintain the moisture. If you're in an area like Maryland where it rains regularly, you don't have to worry about it. If you're somewhere else where you don't get a lot of rain, try and get it more to the shade and in a place where you can kind of just wet it down because the microbiology, hot composting or cold composting, it needs moisture. So if your pile dries out, it's going to inhibit it, you know, from breaking down as quick as it, that it, yeah, as quick as it can. Hmm. And I'm glad you brought up cold composting. So let's talk about hot versus cold and what a homeowner could do, because we're specifically talking now about home composting in this episode versus a commercial operation where you could get a really good hot composting going. Yeah. So, I mean, it's the, I use the same principle. I mean, I have more space than um, some people, but I also don't want to be spending hours managing the hot composting pile. So I sort of do a hybrid, which maybe we'll talk about later. But typically, again, you want that four foot by four foot space. You can build a structure around it. It can be a pile that's bigger, five foot by five feet, something like that. But what you're doing is, is you're just putting in the nitrogens, which is typically cut grass. Um, It's green. It's full of nitrogen. It was alive not too long ago. And you're mixing in browns that are more carbon-based, that have more carbon in it, like leaves that are dry. And that combination of the nitrogen and the carbons from the leaves just creates this sort of atmosphere where uh, microbiology, the bacteria that like that heat, really take off. They start digesting and eating the nitrogen, the carbons and everything. That heat-loving bacteria grows and multiplies and your pile can actually heat up easily to 120, 130, 140 degrees right in the core. And that will greatly increase how quickly that compost breaks down. Now, because it's generating so much heat and it's breaking down quickly, you do sort of have to turn the pile, bring the edges into the middle, maybe add in some more nitrogen, you know, grass or, or the green materials and just keep it hot and going. And it does break down quicker, but it's a little bit more work. And I don't like it as much as sort of a hybrid approach or cold composting because worms don't like to live in 120, 140 degrees. So the organic matter breaks down more quickly and it's great stuff, but I also like letting worms crawl through it and leave behind worm castings because that's really beneficial to your garden plants. Yeah, and I would think for the home composter that creating that heat, you know, could present other problems, you know, attracting vermin, and maybe we can get into that a little bit. But the cold composting, just a little bit easier to handle. You're not having to constantly turn it, right? Right. Definitely works faster if you turn it more. So the more attention you can give it, the more you can turn it. You're just speeding up the process. Otherwise, um, from adding, say, a banana peel to being able to use it in your garden, that could be a couple years. Right. So cold composting, if you're lucky, it's going to be 12 months, but it's going to be a good 18 you know, months, 24 months before something's use- kind of usable. And that's really based on how well, in that case, you keep the moisture level up in the pile and you keep you know things working that way. 
Hmm. And how about let's talk about inputs into the pile. So you've said anything organic. So that could range, I would assume, from your cooking scraps, your vegetable peels, that sort of thing. How about um, those unusual items like a cotton ball or some type of packaging? First of all, I love composting. I'm going to be talking about it a lot this year when I do my um, videos and stuff like that. I was a little bit slow getting started on composting and I had the land and that was the barrier. I just never got started. Once I did, I loved it and I have, you know, literally, you know, probably a ton of compost now. So a couple of things, food scraps and stuff indoors. I like the tumbler that we talked about, even though I have the space outside because the tumbler's close to the house. You know, at dinner time, I don't feel like walking out when it's raining. So I just go to the tumbler, throw it in there. In my bigger spaces where I have the four by four space, I like using cardboard from your Amazon boxes or wherever you get it. Just rip them up into small pieces. And I will actually use leaves and carb and cardboard almost interchangeably. You could use newspapers thrown into that mix too. That's those are the resources people have mostly on hand is usually uh, leaves, cardboard newspaper, paper. Um, You can put in your coffee filters, probably your cotton balls too. Just break it down into pieces. When I'm doing more of a a hot composting or hybrid warm composting, it'll be, you know, a couple inches of the browns, cardboard, paper. And then I do equal amounts of green, which heats up quicker. Sometimes there's a little bit odor to it, but I like to keep things simple. So I'm just like, everything I do is like 50, 50, 50% brown carbons, 50% greens. And you know, if it smells too much, it gets that ammonia smell. Then you throw in some more cardboard or some more leaves and that sort of, you know, tames the pile a little bit odor wise, but cardboard is a great resource. And cardboard's also wonderful just to put down as a weird weed barrier, put your wood chips on there that breaks down quickly. Worms enjoy it. So if you're doing it, when you're building a new raised bed, you could put several layers of cardboard down, soak it down, put your earth on top of that, and that will break down and it will actually feed and take care of the worms for a while. Hmm. And I'm glad you, you mentioned that, that kind of ammonia type smell, Gary. Uh, some people describe it as their pile has gone sour. I'll hear mm-hmm. them say that as well. Um, so you're just advocating just add in more brown. So the brown materials will soak that up. Exactly. The brown materials will absorb it, you know, and it it can happen pretty quickly, like in a day or two, you'll, the pile will change. And it's just like, if you cut the grass, your grass, you put it into a bag, you stuck it at curbside. If it's not taken away, or you go over there like a day or two later, you just smell that intense smell. That's exactly what happens. That's the odor that you get. And it's because your back grass doesn't have any of the carbon in there to kind of, you know, balance out the heating process and the feeding process for the bacteria. So you get this really, really strong odor. Hmm. And you also mentioned in there, um, cutting things up into small pieces, or I always hear people talking about shredding the paper they add to their compost piles. So what is making it into small segments start off with? So I just tear up the cardboard into maybe pieces that are, you know, the size of my hand maybe a little bit smaller. Like I don't go too far into like shredding it, you know, shredding your paper, Um, just tearing it, you know, into pieces, uh, cardboard wise, about the size of your hand, paper, maybe half the size of your hand. But what's important with that is as you're putting that pile in, make sure you soak it down. It needs to have moisture in there. And moisture is what gives 
the microbiology, what it needs to get started, and then it'll feed, it'll grow, and your pile will, will heat up. You don't have to, and that's the thing, like we were talking about before, composting can get very complicated depending on what you're reading and what people tell you to do. You don't need to cut it into really, really tiny pieces. You don't have to spend a lot of time making it, you know, the perfect size. Keep it moist, layered in browns, greens, brown greens, kind of like lasagna, and and see what happens. If you find, like we were saying, it gets too uh, too much odor comes out of it, it starts to smell, then you need to add more browns. If you find it just sits there and it's not really getting hot, then you add, need to add more greens. And what you'll get to do is you'll kind of learn your own style and you can kind of just adjust as you're going on. Either way, all that stuff is going to break down and it's going to turn into compost. So you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to know everything. You just got to get it started. I love that philosophy. Yeah. I would say, you know, make it easy on yourself. And it's kind of backbreaking work as well to keep turning it all the time, unless you have, of course, a tumbler, which Mm -hmm. tumbles it for you, literally. Um, But I've seen people have the separated system. So they'll have like a um, fresh compost, so to speak, like just added, then kind of an in-between, maybe that's six months to a year old, and then they'll have the done. So they're just flipping between um, three-part system, and maybe they'll separate that with some wood or some other type of barrier that you described earlier, fencing or that sort of thing, and just keep them kind of like an open pile. Yeah, and and I mean, I've even seen like five four foot by four foot spaces. I mean, to me, that gets too complicated, but three works pretty well. Three works well for hot composting. The first one is your initial setup of the hot composting. You're letting that go a week, two weeks. Maybe you turn it a little bit within that pile. It breaks down a lot. Maybe third or fourth week that gets moved to the second compartment to kind of finish breaking down. And then you start a new pile in that compartment and you just moved it over. And then over time, like you're saying, that third compartment gets filled with what was in the second pile. I know it gets confusing trying to explain it, but as that breaks down more, maybe at that six months, eight months, that goes into kind of almost that finished compartment. And it just sits there until the gardener needs it. So you're always sort of moving it left to right. And then one more time, I do two things. I do a four foot by four foot for the fresh stuff, get it going. After that's been going for a couple of weeks, goes into that second compartment. And then my third compartment is really just a big pile. It's a big six foot by six foot pile. I just throw it on there. I put a tarp over it to keep the moisture in. And then I just let that break down over time. And that's what I go to and get, you know, when I need it in the spring, in the fall, sometimes for a mid-season composting. But there's a lot of ways that you can do it. Like, I don't want people to to get overly um, stressed with, it has to be right. You, there's just a lot of variations that you can do. Um, and the whole idea is to keep moving the piles, taking the outside, putting it into the middle of the pile, keeping it moist, and then you'll just get to see your piles, you know, go from four feet tall, very quickly drop down to two feet tall. You know, and that's when you know you're close to being able to move it to the next pile. And then eventually it just goes and sits under a tarp and you get it when you need it. Hmm. Yeah. And that breakdown in size can happen pretty quickly. I, when I do fall leaves and add those into the pile, you know, they're pretty expansive when they're first put in there. But once you're kind of pressing out that oxygen, but we'll talk about oxygen in a minute and how mm-hmm. we still need oxygen. Uh, it does collapse a bit. So what you thought was a huge pile could, could shrink pretty rapidly. 
It, sh- it shrinks rapidly. And you're right too about the oxygen. When you turn a pile, you're not just turning it to bring the drier outside leaves into the middle and kind of spreading out the moisture. You're adding in more oxygen, which your microbiology also needs the oxygen. So if it gets really compact and weighted down and there is no oxygen, it, the pile can also start to smell. That's a little bit more rare. But anytime you turn it, you put in more oxygen, kind of helps fuel things again and, and it goes well. My favorite compost is the leaf compost that you were talking about Mm -hmm. because it's pretty easy to do. Yep. And I would say that there are a lot of compost, you know, holders that, or that you can make or purchase that have holes down the side. So there's always those that are adding or allowing oxygen in that way. So kind of netting or open or just ones that are a can, but they have dotted holes along the side and usually on the bottom as well. And, and I think the bottom is not so much for the oxygen, but it's what I call the juice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes people worry that what breaks down is going to go into the soil below and you're going to lose it if you're not, you know, sort of catching it in some way. Um, And either way it works. You still have wonderful compost if it still sort of drains into the ground or if you're kind of, you know, keeping the castings and stuff at the bottom because you have some sort of, you know, plastic bottom. Sometimes I put down just wood so that, you know, I can just go in there and actually use a shovel and I just scrape up the castings from the bottom of the leaf pile and stuff like that. You're always going to get something good. Um, if you compost, I mean, it's, it's just amazing stuff. The leaves I like because I just do a four foot by four foot pen. I use basic chicken wire or fencing to wrap around it. And then I just attach the front, like I was saying, so that you can open it up, pile the leaves all the way up in the fall. Um, and then in the center of it, I cut the grass and then I just drop in two or three bags of grass right into the center. That's kind of like my hybrid approach. That green heats up, keeps the pile warm. Um, even It was even warm until December. It was still at like 80 or 90 degrees when we have freezing temperature here. And then it cools off. But it's a great way to sort of speed up leaf composting without having to go and turn the pile because I don't turn it. with. I just set it up. I let it go. When it drops, I'll put in more leaves, maybe throw in another green core if it's the right timing. And I just let that do its thing. And I just get beautiful leaf compost with the added benefit of grass, which provides more nitrogen because leaves sometimes don't give you a ton of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but they're great soil conditioners, great for soil life. And worms will move into there because the pile doesn't heat up to that you know, 120, 140 degrees in the core it will, but not on the outer parts. So you get the benefit of the worms digesting the leaves, leaving behind castings. And it's, to me, it's, it's the best stuff you can have. And it's not a lot of work, which is what I prefer. Mm -hmm. I agree with the leaf compost. That is um, what I mainly use for mulching around everything and even throwing in planting holes along with the soil, just adding a couple handfuls of that, you know, it's like the additive to everything. And the the thing about leaves is if you, you know, don't have, if you have the space, but you don't have access to a lot of leaves, leaves, you can go and pick up curbside and very, very rarely, if at all, they're, they're not sprayed with anything. So you're just getting leaves. 
and no chemicals on there. So you can use them. If you were to go and try and pick up some, you know, bagged fresh grass clippings or something like that from the neighborhood, the lawns are often sprayed with um, sprays to kill weeds, dandelions and stuff like that. And those residues stay in the grass. So if you compost that down, there's a good chance the chemicals don't break down and then you put them into your, your garden and it affects your plants and it, it can cause damage. So grass, you just got to make sure it has no chemical sprays on there that are used to kill weeds. Hmm. Great point, Gary. Um, and that does bring us to what else not to add to your compost pile. And on my list are large sticks because I've been lazy in the past, Gary. and I have just thrown in whole sticks, you know, the size of my arm and that they just, you know, it takes forever for that to break down. Yeah. I mean, even branches, anything woody from a tree can take a while to, to go. I usually keep them on the side. And when I'm filling my 17 inch raised beds or 34 inch raised beds when I'm making something new, all that wood I put in the bottom of the raised bed to like, I don't know, maybe a quarter of the depth. And I use that to sit there because like you're saying, it takes so long to break down. So it sits sort of like Hugo culture in the bottom of your taller raised beds, put some soil around it and it breaks down really slowly over the years, holds moisture, gives back. And that's a great way to decompose, you know, bigger branches and stuff like that. Even pieces of firewood I'll put in the bottom, you know, and then the upper two thirds of your bed are better soil. The top final third of the bed is the best soil. And then that's where your plants tend to grow, but you don't want to put anything really into your compost pile that doesn't have a chance to break down within that one year period. And that's really sticks, twigs, branches, just they're not going to do it. Um, I don't put meats or anything into there either. Um, They will break down, but they would be most likely something that's going to attract raccoons, uh, rats, et cetera. Um, So no meats into the garden. Compost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would say anything that is from animal waste or um, animal byproduct that you're cooking with, say, you know, grease or anything like that um, is a no-no for your compost pile unless, you know, you're a commercial operation and you can get a really heated up one to to break all that down. But also, um, as you were saying, it can attract vermin to your pile, which is the next thing I wanted to ask you about, Gary, because it is a nice, warm, nice place, as you described in in December, that attracts earthworms. uh, Do you find other creatures going in there as well? I I actually don't. Um, And that's a good question because people ask that all the time. Isn't it going to attract rats or isn't it going to attract mice? So when you just have a pile uncovered, It gets rained on, it's exposed. Nothing really likes to live in that. Once you put a tarp on top of that, it shelters that pile from the rain and snow and stuff like that. That's when I will have sometimes mice, moles, or voles move in. So if you're using a tarp, once a week you do want to get out and move it around. Mm. because you'll disturb, you know, any potential nesting. If it's just open, the pile is just open, not a whole lot will move in there. Um, It's also not always the safest place um, for the smaller 
animals because, you know, and people don't like snakes. <laughs> don't freak out. Snakes will come by, they'll check it out. They're not going to live in there, but they'll also take care of anything that's around there. I live in a place that's a little bit more rural, you know, loosely suburban. So we do get black snakes, but in four years I've seen two. So it's not frequent and they don't cause a problem. Yeah. I mean, the occasional passing snake, come on, they're, they're your garden friend. <laughs> And they'll take care of some of the pro- some of those vermin problems that you might have as well. Yep. I, I mean, I I prefer to have them there, and I'm very appreciative. In addition to that, um, we have different hawks that will also kind of keep an eye out for the mice and the voles and the moles. So you know, you kind of if you have a good ecosystem going, the compost piles are really left alone, and you can you know make all you need for your garden, and you don't really have to worry about it. I'm not finding bees move in. I'm not finding ants move in or anything like that. Um, occasionally you get like the paper wasp or something that may, you know, tuck itself in a corner of a pen that maybe you made out of wood pallets or something like that, but nothing that becomes a problem that if you just take a look at it and take care of it, it's good to go. Hmm. And then I get a lot of questions and you probably do as well, Gary, about putting weeds into your compost. So you've pulled weeds out of your garden. You want to compost them because it's organic material. But um, if they are actively flowering and forming seeds, um, that's when the question comes, should I put this in my compost pile? So the answer to that is if they're going in as your nitrogen, fresh pulled in a hot compost pile, like the, you know, brown, green, brown, green, and it is going to be heating up to 120, 140 degrees, and you're going to do the hot composting process, then you don't have to worry about it because that heat will kill off the weeds, weed seeds, I should say. If you're doing cold composting, weed seeds can last for years, you know, um, that's just what they do. And sometimes when you pull a weed out and it has a flower and you throw it on the pile, you think, okay, I missed it. It's not going to pot. It's not going to produce seeds. Sometimes that plant can keep going if it gets rained on and stuff and it does produce seeds. So to answer your question in a cold compost, you do run the risk of seeds, but I find it's not as big as problem as people think, because sometimes if the seeds are exposed, they do germinate or they just dry out because they're on the edge or you put them into the, your garden and they just don't take, or if they do take, um, they're right on top of the surface. So you can just come by in a couple of minutes, you just pull them out and you're done with it. So you don't have to be over worried. It's not like you're going to, you know, overseed your garden and weeds and you're not going to be able to, you know, get it under control. But hot composting will take care of the weed seeds. Cold composting, there's always a risk that seeds are there. Mm-hmm. And to be on the safe side, you know, maybe pop those flower heads off, put that in the landscape waste you're going to send out. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to be careful about that. And that does bring me to things that grow on your compost pile. I think all gardeners have had some kind of story about things that they put into their compost pile that actually germinated and grew for them. Um, the most frequent I hear about are tomatoes and squashes or pumpkins. And I would agree with that. I have had late in the season for the last three years, a smaller variety of cherry tomato that grows around my composting area. They are the sweetest best growing, most disease tolerant, handle the cold weather, super prolific tomato 
ever. And this is the first year I finally harvested them. I don't know what variety they are. So I'm calling them the uh, rusted garden compost tomatoes. They do really well. Squash, pumpkins will grow. Um, the other one that grows really well are green beans. And sometimes I will let the green beans grow. I'll put in a, a steak or something and I just harvest green beans right out of there. They love growing in compost. Squash, pumpkins, they get a little bit too big. And then a tomato, I just thin down to a couple of plants. They grow behind there over the compost pile and I, I harvest them. And that usually happens when you're doing the cold composting because you're just throwing everything in. You don't have that heat and you end up, you know, with, with things germinating. Um, I think it's kind of cool. It's kind of like a nature scape to me. I'm like, all right, what's going to grow in the compost this year? And I just let it go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's always fun to discover. I've not seen green beans. I might have to try that myself. What I've seen in my pile is because I do a lot of bulb forcing. So when I'm done forcing the bulbs, they're, they're kind of on the weak side, you know, and I'm not going to plant them in the ground because it will take several years for them to recover um, and bloom again. So I'll just chuck them into the compost pile. But then you know, three years later, I'll have those tulips or those daffodils or whatever it is popping up from the compost pile. So that's always fun to see. I know there it's amazing. I think plants really want to survive. The seeds want to survive. The bulbs want to survive. Um, so it, 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 it's actually a bit amazing to me, like what can be so beat up and then two or three years later, it's growing, you know, wildly and perfectly out of the compost. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned the the tarp over the top and having to, you know, open that up or check that out every once in a while to make sure nobody has made that into their little home. But I also hear about a lot of people who do closed bag composting. So they're literally like bagging up leaves or grass and then just let it sit for six months. But I would think that would be kind of anaerobic. Have you had any experience with that, Gary? I've experimented. So I, like I was saying, I love leaf compost. So I do take a metal trash can, poke a bunch of holes in the bottom, fill that trash can up with leaves, soak it, you know, water drains out the bottom, put the lid on it, and then I let it go. And that's similar to the bag. It's a little bit bigger, has a little more airflow, has drainage in there. When you do get to the plastic bags, if you're just putting in too much grass, it's just going to become a slimy, smelly mess. Um, and because there's no evaporation, it stays a slimy, smelly mess. And usually you have to then throw that onto a cold compost pile or somewhere and let it finish breaking down. Mm-hmm. If you're shoving leaves, more leaves into the bag, you know, and maybe some grass, leaves tend to do pretty well in a bag like that. But you do need to put holes in it. So one, water will come in when it rains and keep the pile moist because we were talking about that earlier that you need that moisture. And two, if too much gets in there, there's enough holes in there that it, it kind of will, you know, drain into the ground and stuff like that. But if you're going to do the bagged process, more browns, more leaves is is really more important. Hmm. And one thing I get asked a lot about what people can add to their pile. And that reminded me of that when you gave this qu- answer just now, Gary, is soil. So Mm -hmm. that could be um, old pots from houseplants that you're just dumping out. Maybe the houseplant failed and you just dump the whole thing in. Um, Or it could be from containers that you've been growing. Or it could just be, you know, you're digging out something. So it's excess soil and you throw it on top of the pile. Um, Does that qualify as a brown input, I assume? It's, I mean... 
So the colors can be, yeah, it's brown, but it doesn't, it's not full of carbon. Just like you can get coffee grounds, which is by the way, a, a great resource. If you go to Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts and you ask them for their spent coffee, that is brown like coffee. However, that is considered a nitrogen because it's higher in nitrogen and stuff like that. That's just a side note. If you need things to throw into your compost pile, coffee grounds is a nice green with nitrogen that will help heat up the pile. Um, I like putting the soil in there. It doesn't do much in the way of helping the pile break down, but it gives a place for bacteria to live, soil microbes, a place for the earthworms to live. And, you know, I have several setups. What I would probably recommend if people are just, you know, are listening and thinking about compost the first time, I would just do three pens, one pen, four feet by four feet. That's going to be where you put all your leaves, maybe throw in some grass in the core, let it do its thing. The other pen would be for whatever scraps you have in your kitchen that you want to, you know, put out there, anything organic that you're pulling out of the lawn, out of your garden, whatever you want to do, the spent containers of soil, like you're talking about, just throw them in there. And it's going to take about a year, maybe two to fill up that first pen. And then you work your way over to that second pen. And as you're filling up the second pen, that first pen of the cold composting, the combination of everything you've been throwing in there starts to get ready. And with those kind of three pens, you're going to have plenty of compost really in 12 to 18 months. And it seems like a long time to wait, but for those of us that put it off, like I did, all of a sudden, two years go by, three years, four years, five years. And you're like, why didn't I get started earlier? Once you get to that 18-month point, you just have this continuous supply of compost that goes forward You know, for as long as you want to be gardening and you want to be using it. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's that proverbial set it and forget it, right? Yeah, <laughs> you just right. you set it up and it does the work for you, which is fabulous. And because we're human beings, right, Gary, and we're impatient and maybe we don't want to wait for 18 months, I see a lot of people selling things that are like compost accelerators or compost activators. Are there any of those that you've tried or recommend? I've tried them and... The truth is they don't do a whole lot. You know, your best activator is more nitrogen. So if you wanted to speed it up, just go buy a bag of blood meal. You know, that's very high in nitrogen. Um, Sprinkle it on your pile, soak it in with water. That nitrogen will help accelerate it. If you're worried about something that's going to speed up the breakdown, just take some of your old compost if you have it. That's filled with all the bacteria you need. Throw it on your pile, wash it into the pile. Microbes multiply at this ridiculous rate that it can go from like a couple thousand to a billion, like in a day, seriously. So, your old compost can help accelerate new piles. If you're just starting, just go take some soil from your garden. That's full of great stuff. So, that will get it started. Um, I've heard people, you know, want to put beer in there. Um, some people put urine in there, you know, they dilute their urine. That's a nitrogen, just like the blood meal. So you can kind of, I mean, you can spend all the money you want, but you you really don't have to. You can just, you know, keep the pile moist, use grass for the greens to give nitrogen to the plants, to the pile, and that will help speed up the process. Or just keep it moist and throw in some earth soil. The microbes will do their thing and you're going to get compost. If there was something out there that made compost in one week, we would all be using it. We would all know what it is. And, you know, we wouldn't even be having this conversation because people just <laughs> buy it, throw it on the pile. You have instant compost. 
Yeah. And I would say if there was something that could decompose things that quickly, um, you know, without being a harmful chemical, uh, there probably wouldn't be any zombie apocalypse movies out there. Right, so. right. <laughs> but yes, uh, the, the best advice I've ever heard is just to add a handful of already done compost yeah. into a compost pile. And that's the best you could do. That's that's all you need to do. And if you really read the boxes of the, you know, amendments that you're buying, or even when you buy organic fertilizers, you see all these uh, microbes in there, bacillus, something, you know, and if you've seen it, it's like 20 different things in there. That's just microbes. That's already out there. You know, they're not really lying to you, but they're not giving you anything special. Those things are already out in your garden and you can get it from a shovel full of compost or it's already in your soil. So you don't have to spend extra money on it. Hmm. And so you made your compost is about 18 months in and you've got some really good stuff. Do you have any special system that you use for filtering your compost? No, and I don't, I don't sift mine. First of all, leaves break down into this beautiful stuff that doesn't need to be sifted in any capacity. So leaf compost is wonderful or the leaf and grass combination. Like we were talking before, if you put in like smaller twigs and, you know, maybe like sunflower stems, you may get bigger pieces in there, but it's not going to really hurt your garden. You could spend the time sifting it, but I find that the bigger pieces just get worked into your garden soil anyway. You know, maybe if I was setting up a bed for planting seeds and I just wanted something a little bit more, um, sifted, I might sift it through, you know, I mean, I, I don't have it now cause I don't do it that often, but you just make kind of a square out of some two by fours and you can get, it's, I'm trying to think of the name. It's metal. It's like, you have, maybe you can help me with it, but it's these little tiny squares of like sort of fencing that you can just staple right onto it. Um, but they're small. Like hardware cloth. Hardware cloth. That's what I was trying to think of. You use hardware cloth too to put in the bottom of your um, raised bed to keep moles and voles from crawl crawling in. But that little hardware cloth sift or uh, sieve works really well to kind of take out the big things. And I would just take that when I used to use it over to my garden plot, wheelbarrow full of compost that, you know, has bigger debris in there, throw some shovelfuls under it. And then I just sift it right into, into the raised bed. But it was extra work. Like I was saying before, I, I, I want to do... I want to compost. I want to collect the compost, but I want to do the least amount of work for it to break down and then to use it in the garden. So. Mm, I agree. The, the less work you have to put in, the better. <laughs> the more you can spend doing a lot of other things in your garden. So that brings us to all the ways we can use our compost. So once you made that beautiful compost and um, we talked a little bit about it as a top dressing and how you can use it, but do you use it for compost tea? Are there other unusual ways that you're using it? I don't use it for the compost tea and that kind of falls into, that's just an extra step. It does work. Compost tea is really great to use, I think, for container gardening so that you're basically, you know, putting in compost or you're putting in your leaf mold, which is leaf compost. Um, and sometimes people only let it sit, you know, for a couple of hours and they just turn it into this watery sort of tea. And then they pour it into their containers, soaks through pretty quickly and kind of delivers nutrients and stuff. Other people like it to um, sort of simmer for several days. If you're doing that, 
very often you want to air pump in there so that you don't get an anaerobic uh, activity going on, stuff that smells bad because there's no oxygen. And they will you know, cook the tea for several days, creates great microbes that your plants tend to love, and then they pour it into their containers. I just found that's a lot of work. And that if you're regularly, regularly, yeah, regularly (laughs) using compost, spring, fall, middle of the season, your soils tend to have everything that they need. So I don't, I don't do, you know, much more than, you know, mix it in a 50-50 mix if I'm filling new containers, put, you know, an inch or two on old beds or kind of mix a couple shovelfuls into a planting hole when I'm putting a tomato transplant into the ground or something like that. Hmm. I agree with all of those uses, Gary, especially putting it in the planting hole um, as an amendment. You don't need fertilizer at that point. You know, the compost is the fertilizer. Right. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. Like for me, um, and maybe this is another episode, what is truly organic gardening? Organic gardening to me is using the resources around your property to create compost. It's not necessarily buying you know, organic granular fertilizer from a store and all that kind of stuff. Because your compost is, if you're lucky, it's a one, 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 1% nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, but it's slow, low, and steady. And that's what feeds your plants wonderfully for the year. And just slow, low, and steady amounts of compost. That's how, you know, your forests work when leaves fall and stuff decay. Just a little bit N, P, and K, but it's always there and it's always a steady supply. So like you're saying, you don't have to be throwing in the granular fertilizer um, into the planting hole. Just throw in your compost. That's plenty. You don't have to overlove the plants with more water-soluble fertilizer, organic granular fertilizer, and compost. Even though I'm guilty of doing it all, you know, compost is really all you need. That is a great message, Gary. And Thank you so much for letting us pick your brain all about home composting. Is there anything else you want to let our listeners know about composting in general? I would say, let's just finish where we started. Get started. You know, find a little bit of a space, build a pen four feet by four feet, and just start putting in your organic matter. And, you know, 12 months from now, 18 months from now, you will have beautiful stuff and you'll be sold on composting. Thank you, Gary. Thank you for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Stinking hellebore plant profile. Stinking hellebore, Helleborus fetidus, is a perennial plant that is native to the mountains of Europe and Southwest Asia. Despite the common name, the flowers don't smell bad at all. In fact, to notice the stink, you will have to actually crush the foliage and take a whiff of that. So don't let that scary name keep you from growing it. This tough plant has beautiful, finely cut leaves and bright green flowers. They bloom in late winter and early spring. It is very low maintenance. In mid-spring, you can prune off any spent flowers as well as any old, tattered foliage. The plant spreads fairly quickly and forms large clumps that can be divided every few years. 
plant the divisions immediately, and water them in well to give them a good start. Stinking hellebore thrives in part shade and rich, well-draining soils. It is hardy to USDA zones 6 through 9. They are fairly drought-tolerant once established. Like its hellebore cousins, it is poisonous if ingested, and therefore deer-resistant. Stinking hellebore, you can grow that. What's new this week? Well, I was shocked to see my little Tommy crocuses pop up in my north-facing front yard and bloom for me earlier this week. I think that's the earliest they've ever done so. In local gardening news, some upcoming events you might want to attend include the Tacoma Horticultural Club's talk on February 15th, Growing Figs with Jafar Basoji. This takes place at the Tacoma Park Fire Station Community Room at 7.30 p.m. Doors open at 7. You can find out more details about it at tacomahort.org. Also in person and local is the National Capital Orchid Society's annual show and sale, February 17th through the 19th at Homestead Gardens in Davidsonville, Maryland. Find out more about that at ncos.us and click the Upcoming Events tab. Happening online on Sunday, February 19th at 2 p.m. is Stars for Your Garden from Stars Roses, hosted by the Potomac Rose Society. You can register for that and get the Zoom link through potomacrose.org. Happy gardening! Get low-maintenance alternatives to lawns with Ground Cover Revolution by Kathy Jens. Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional turf grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now they're looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn, knowing how and when to replace your turf, and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need and some you didn't even know you needed. Included are 40 in-depth profiles of plants and an incredibly useful chart giving you all the specifics on each of those choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea what a beautiful lawn should be. Available February 7th, 2023 and you can pre-order it now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen Terry Spade, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space while also making a lush outdoor living area 
area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at Amazon.com or Bookshop.org. This is the last word on observation. I'm Greg Peterson of the Urban Farm Podcast. Life can be an interesting, long, and winding road. I lived right in the middle of Phoenix, population 4.7 million for 54 years, and I planted my first garden at the age of 14. In 1989, I bought my first home, and soon after that discovered permaculture, and very quickly started converting my yard into an edible landscape. One of my first lessons in edible yard design was observation. Stand back, watch what is happening in your space, Watch where the sun is every season. It is lower in the sky in the winter and higher in the summer. Pay attention to the water flowing across your property. Where does it come in from and where does it go? How can you slow it, spread it, and sink it, as Brad Lancaster, the water harvesting guru, states? Getting that hydration to stay in your garden is of utmost importance, especially in times of drought. What is your dirt like? Or do you live in an area where you have soil that is a nice mix of dirt, airspace, organic matter, soil life, and moisture? Pay attention, and when you're done, pay more attention. Our observations give us the clues to make forward progress with working in the flow of nature. Discovering how nature works is the key to our long-term success. For decades, I have been saying spend at least a year, four seasons, on a property before making any major changes. This is a piece of advice that I have easily dispensed, while at the same time not thinking a lot about the specifics. I had lived and observed the same piece of property for so long, I had either gone unconscious or was really understanding the flow of the property. Honestly, it could have been either one. Then I moved 1,900 miles to Asheville, North Carolina. Totally different environment and growing process. All of a sudden, the magnitude of spending a year living in a space before making any changes hit home. There are four seasons, and one of them gets really, really cold, unlike anything I had ever experienced. And the rain? Wow! We received almost 30 inches of rain from May 20th to the end of 2022. That is a way different rainwater management process. The biggest thing that I realize often is always keep a curious mind. I'm a lifelong learner. One of my big reasons I love podcasting is every new episode brings fresh learning to me. So I invite you to keep learning and start with a curious mind and observation. What is something new that you can observe in your garden today? And I invite you to join me at urbanfarmpodcast.com for our weekly podcast. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden DC slash support. Another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital 
publication, Washington Gardener Magazine. To do so, go to WashingtonGardener.com. Thank you. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.